Hello, this is Monocle Reads. I'm Georgina Godwin. My guest today is Los Angeles-based artist and writer Catherine Scanlon. She has degrees in painting, writing and English from the University of Iowa and the School of the Art Institute of Chicago. She was a recipient of a 2021 Literature Award from the American Academy of Arts and Letters. Her writings appeared in Granta, Harper's and the Paris Review, as well as other publications. She's the author of Org 9 Fog and the short story collection The Dominant Animal. Her new book is Kick the Latch. It's a mesmerising novel about the everyday life of Sonia, a Midwestern horse trainer. Catherine, it's really wonderful to speak to you. Thanks so much for, for joining us on the show. Thanks for inviting me. Uh, Kick the Latch is an incredible book. It's already getting a huge amount of attention. I wonder how you would describe what the genre is. <laughs> well, I have from the beginning have wanted to call it a novel. And that's, you know, that's what it's being marketed as by my publishers. And I think it's a novel as opposed to say a piece of nonfiction or or a biography because I've you know taken fiction's liberties with it I've shaped it and I sort of think that any of these kind of shaping or or narrative changes made to material results in fiction that's um Mm. Yeah, that's that's my turn of mind. The way it's written, it's it's based. You fictionalize the account of of a woman's life, a, a really a quite ordinary seeming life. Although when we read more about it, a huge amount happens. It's written in in very short chapters, almost like short stories. Some of them just paragraphs long. And I wonder if you were writing about your own life in such a way, what would be your chapter headings? <laughs> uh, I would hope they would be sort of similar to these in the way that I had a lot of fun writing the titles to these chapter headings and they're very uh, much playing with language and playing with the language that was happening in each individual section. But in terms of your formative chapter, I mean, you're clearly deeply artistic, a writer and an artist. And I wonder what started that for you? Uh, Apparently, I just was interested in those things from the beginning, I mean, I think most children are pretty artistic and, you know, like to make up stories and make pictures and things like that. But I really liked it. And my parents encouraged me to to do it. And it's just something that I've always done my whole life. I've always been interested in making art and writing. You did a degree in, in painting. Is that something that, that you continue doing? And was there a hard decision between painting and writing? I don't know about a hard decision, but I always think of, um, I had a painting instructor at Iowa who told me at one point that I would have to choose between painting and writing and I it made me angry at the time and I sort of rejected it and I said no I could do both but then I did find that as I moved around from apartment to apartment space really became an issue with continuing to paint in the way that I had been painting at school to paint with oils it's just kind of you have to have a setup and it's very messy and kind of toxic and I just found that over time I had less space to work on visual things and and maybe because of that or maybe because of other things I started making it less and maybe got a little less interested in it and started focusing more on writing. Mm. Let's talk about your first book because it's called Org Ninth Fog and it's based on a diary that you found at an estate auction. Tell us more. That was a book that I worked on on and off for about 10 years and I was working on it alongside with 
writing the stories that were collected in the dominant animal and the diary was this object that I had that I had had for years before I started trying to work with it as a text and it it just was one of those really magnetic objects to me that I would turn to and look at from time to time and and just think about it and then I started to think about what I could do with it and when I started reading the diary because at first I didn't really read it it was just kind of an interesting beautiful object in and of itself but then I realized also a lot of it was blotted out by water so I, I sort of I think at first assumed like I wouldn't really be able to read it and the handwriting was very small but at a certain point I started to read it and I realized I actually could read quite a lot of it and just the voice of this woman it was written by a woman in her 80s yeah, she was 86 when she started writing it. It was a five-year diary, so she kept it the whole five years. It was from 1968 to 1972. Um, and she filled every space, you know, that was available in this five-year diary. Yeah, and I think that I just started copying out passages, that the ones that I really was surprised by or that seemed really meaningful or funny or interesting to me. And... And then just gradually over the years, like worked that text into what became this this book that became Ognine Fog. So you clearly have an interest in found stories or lived lives. Tell us more about that. Hmm. I don't know if I could tell you much more about that except just what you say. I just am really interested in in listening to people and, you know, to reading people's accounts of their lives and and I love hearing people tell stories. I'm always making notes in my notebooks about stories that people have told me or that I've heard, overheard, eavesdropped, I guess. How did you come to the story of Kick the Latch, Sonia's story? How did you meet her? I met Sonia through my parents. She's an antique dealer now, and they're both antique dealers. And so she was someone that they knew from their business. And she and my mom especially got friendly and and Sonia would tell my mom stories whenever she saw her and she, you know she knew that my mom liked horses too and so she would tell her these stories about her race tracking days and and other things as well and and then when I would talk to my mom on the phone she started telling me about this person that she had met and these stories that she was telling her and I you know was just as interested in them as as my mom was and ended up arranging to meet her and talked to her and I recorded our conversation the first time we met. I met her, you know, her knowing that I was a writer and that I might be interested in writing something about her. I didn't really know what it would be or if it would be anything at all. You know, this is a person I had never met before, but I recorded that conversation and it lasted, you know, three or four hours. And at the end of it, I, I kind of had a an idea of the shape that the book could take that I could write a book about you know I realized that I could write a book about this person based on what she'd told me and was it just that one conversation or did you continue a dialogue with her at first I really liked the idea of the constraint of that of trying to write an entire novel based on one conversation and I did try to do it I wrote a draft my first draft was just based on that first conversation but it it just it wasn't right yet I felt like it was missing things there were more things I wanted to know more about. I didn't really ask her any questions during that first conversation. I just sort of listened to her and, you know, invited her to say whatever she liked. And 
So she gave me this kind of arc of her life, I suppose. But then there were a lot of things that I I realized in after writing my draft that it would be good to know more about. So we ended up having several more long conversations on the phone, which I also recorded. You've then mm-hmm. chosen to break the book up into much smaller chapters. Can you tell us about that choice of structure? First of all, it was a way to sort of just manage and grapple with the the long text that I had that was the form of these transcripts, um, which were very long. And so it was a way for me to just kind of begin to break it down in a way where I could see what I was doing and I could sort of manage this text. Because when I you know, wrote my first draft, I was sort of copy pasting sections of the transcript, putting them into these documents and then just starting to work with them from there mm. and change them. But I think also just that form is the form that I'm really comfortable with. I like writing stories. I like writing very short stories. So it was just, it was something that felt natural to me to do. And how heavily did you edit those transcripts? Uh, Quite heavily. There, you know, in a lot of cases, I I really wanted to preserve her voice. You know, there was something really special about the way that she would turn phrases and the way that she would say things. And so it was important to me to to preserve a lot of her original language and a lot of her original speech in the book. But I also, you know, made a lot of changes as far as just structuring things, writing each individual section, going back in, um, sort of rewriting some of the lines, adding some of my own it's sort of hard to describe, but it's sort of both. It's sort of a lot of the transcript is untouched and a lot of the transcript is very, very different. And is some of it entirely fictional? Um, there may be a few instances in the book, yeah, where I it was an invention on my part. But for the most part, it's fairly faithful to what was told to me. Let's just talk a little bit about Sonia's life as seen or as described by you. So she's a small child. She, when she's uh, just uh, very, very young, she was born with a dislocated hip. Yeah, I thought that was um, I thought that was a really interesting thing that she ended up having this, you know, very physical life that really depended on her being able to to ride a horse and to do all sorts of physical work. But when she was born, you know, the doctor told her mother that she would likely never be able to walk. And her mother was, I mean, sounds like a truly great woman. She was, uh, Sonia was born in a poor part of town. There wasn't a lot of excess cash. But after she fell in love with horses, somebody gave her a, a Shetland, which unfortunately was a stallion. So it, <laughs> it, it went off after a couple of mares and they got rid of it shortly mm-hmm. afterwards. Um, mm-hmm. But her mother really invested both time and money in keeping that love of horses alive for Sonia. Yeah, it does sound like she really, really helped her daughter in a lot of ways, for sure. But the world that she then went on to work in, that of racehorses and being a racehorse trainer, being a groom at first, looking after horses, was really, it sounds, quite a violent world. Tell us more. Yeah, I mean, I think that it is sort of a violent world. There's a lot of violence that, you know, certainly happens to the animals, training them and and sort of encouraging them to to compete in these ways that, you know, Sonia was working at these tracks that I think it's quite different at the the tracks where the horses are worth a lot of money. But she was mostly, when she was younger anyway, working at these tracks where it was sort of third and fourth tier or horses that maybe at one time had been 
great horses, very valuable horses, but they had had injuries and they were older and they were sort of broken down. And so there's a lot of unscrupulous activity that seems to happen. And then also it's a very male dominated world, it seems. And, you know, Sonia's a a young woman sort of making her way through this world. And um, in a lot of instances, sounds like fairly rough. There does seem to be a sense of community, though, albeit a sort of alternative one. She she kind of finds her own home within that milieu. Yeah, certainly. She talks about her racetrack family, all the people that even if everyone doesn't get along, you know, they all sort of look out for each other and, and take care of each other. And there are wonderful sort of little vignettes of, of various characters. Tell us a bit about Bicycle Jenny. Bicycle Jenny, when Sonia told me this story about this woman that she knew when she was a child. That was actually the point when I I sort of was like, I think that there is a book here. There was something just so wonderful about this story. And it's a a story about a woman that lived near where Sonia grew up. She was a, a neighbor of hers. Bicycle Jenny, her house had burned down years before that and before Sonia was a child. And she lived in basically the foundation of what had been the house with dozens, maybe a hundred chihuahuas and was just sort of an eccentric person that everybody in the town, you know, knew about and sort of wondered about and was a fairly mysterious figure and made a pretty big impression on on Sonia as a child, it sounds like. It's a wonderful story, and I really would urge people to look at the text. Talking, going back to that violence, there's there's one uh, short section called I Seen Him Every Day, and it's just 10 lines, but the most affecting 10 lines, it tells in really very sparse and, I guess, unemotional language about her rape. Yes. Would it be possible to read us that? Um, sure. I seen him every day. Near the end of summer, I woke up in my trailer one night with a man over me. He sneaked in while I was sleeping and put a gun to my head. I got raped. He was taking pills. He was a jockey trying to cut weight. He told me he'd just shot a dog. I didn't say anything because if I'd said something, I would have been off the track. My folks would have come and got me. The guy sobered up. I knew him. I seen him every day. I knew exactly who it was. It was bad, but anyway, I survived. I cut my hair real short after that. I mean, there's so much in that short passage, which is just brutal. Tell me about the language in which she spoke to you. Was was that how she put it to you? Was she upset in any way? I decided to write that passage that way, partly because it, it was similar to how it, she delivered that story. It was very, very matter of fact, not much embellishment, not much emotion. And and then I also, I just feel that in writing, especially when writing about, you know, something like this, to me, I just find it more powerful to have a more powerful impact in it when it's written in a restrained way. And how involved was Sonia in the writing process? And, and did she read it before publication? Yeah, she did. You know, this was something where kind of every step of the way I was making sure that she was okay with this. And I shared multiple drafts of the book with her and definitely got her blessing, you know, before 
before each step, including, you know, sending it to a publisher. And what are the ethical challenges of writing about a real life person? I mean, just that, first of all, I think making sure that she's okay with what I'm doing, that she doesn't have any issues with what I'm doing. And then also, I think just, I, you know, I really wanted to write something good. I wanted to write something worthwhile that, that I thought that people would like to read in order to sort of, you know, do justice to, to what I felt was a really, you know, exceptional story that had been shared with me. She leaves horses, the world of horses. She goes to work in a prison. Why was that? And how did it all come about? Well, as she told it to me, it was sort of that she she reached a point where she was kind of done with the racetrack world. She had gotten a lot of injuries and her parents were getting older and everything kind of coalesced to this point where she felt like she wanted to leave the track. And so she ended up moving back home and then met a man that she started dating and he turned violent. There were some pretty terrible episodes between the two of them and basically it turned out that he, you know, was sort of stalking her, trying to, trying to do her harm at least, or trying to kill her. And, and then he kind of just disappeared and, so she's sort of looking over her back all the time. And, and it sounds like that's fueled her decision to go into law enforcement. Um, and then she also felt that she had sort of been done a misjustice by the by the local police department um, who hadn't really done much to protect her from this person. And so, you know, I don't know, it's kind of a surprising turn in some ways. But, you know, she decides to sort of go into this this realm where maybe she's going to have some power or maybe she's going to to be able to, well, as she says, you know, and as I say in the book, you know, she thinks maybe she'll, she'll meet him there someday. Maybe someday he'll walk in (laughs) to the prison and she'll be able to see him. Just talking about the sort of factual part of it, there's one bit which really got me thinking. It's in your the chapter called A Thousand Pounds of Pressure. Galloping, a horse spends a lot of his time suspended in the air, flying really, or on one foot. When a foot lands, there's a thousand pounds of pressure held up by that one thin leg, that little hoof the size of a handheld ashtray. It was something I'd never thought about before, but of course that is how a horse moves, and then it sort of informs all of these terrible injuries that she describes. Mm-hmm. That was one of the parts of the book that was invented by me because I was thinking about Edward Moybridge's early photographic experiments, which, you know, he he set up all these cameras to to try to determine how a horse actually runs. It was a racehorse, actually. The I can't remember his first name right now, but the man who founded Stanford University owned racehorses, I believe, and he was trying to settle a bet because before the invention of photography, I don't know if you've seen, like, you're familiar with, like, older paintings of horses, but, you know, there's this kind of, our eyes can't move quickly enough, right, to see how a horse's legs actually move when they run. So before photography, we thought they ran with their two front feet stretched forward and their two back feet stretched backward, sort of like how a rocking horse looks. But then once Moybridge was able to capture, you know, sort of frame by frame how the legs work, we realized that, you know, it wasn't like that at all. It was totally different. And there is there is a point at each, you know, in each cycle of gallop where all four legs are off the ground and the horse is flying and they call this unsupported transit. 
which is an idea I've always really been interested in. So I, I wanted to to sneak that into the book. And are you interested in horses yourself? And did you have to familiarise yourself with, with the lingo and the world of horse racing? Um, not really too much. I think that the lingo was really a lot of what was interesting to me in Sonia's story. You know, I, I love this kind of like, you know, specialised language that that's particular to different trades and different activities. But I grew up with horses and spent a lot of, t- you know, a lot of my childhood around horses. So, so a lot of the things were actually fairly familiar to me. I just wanted to talk about, we were talking about the harsh way that horses sometimes are treated, but it was quite interesting, the whole crossover between equine medicine and humans. I mean, they just inject themselves with, <laughs> with horse mm-hmm. meds. Tell us more mm-hmm. about that. Uh, apparently, this was something that just was happening because, you know, their lives, the the people who worked at the track, their lives were so consumed by this work, they really didn't leave. And they, you know, I think also, they probably just didn't really have a lot of extra money to be going, you know, to a regular doctor. So if they're feeling sick, you know, there's already a vet there. And, and so a lot of times they would just get treated by the vet, apparently. Well, it's a wonderfully empathetic way that you write about these people and indeed these animals. Can you tell me, how has Sonia reacted to publication? Um, She seems really pleased with it. I was just texting with her over the weekend and I sent her some copies of the UK version, which just came out. And she had told me that she had been reading a lot of interesting reviews. And so I was asking her how it felt to read them, like if if she was uncomfortable or, you know, if she liked reading them, then she said that she she really loved reading them and she just likes to hear <laughs> um, other people's opinions. So I was glad to hear that. Has she outed herself at all? Obviously, Sonia's I, not her real name. Sonia actually is her real name. It's um, her last name is never in the book. I was going to change it because I changed all the other names in the book, obviously. And I had always planned to change hers as well, but I I just struggled with it for a long time because I couldn't really come up with a name that felt right. And I had asked her about it a few times and she hadn't really, you know, she hadn't really said much. But then at a certain point when I was finishing up the manuscript, I asked her about it again. And she said that she felt like it would be an honor to have it be her real name in the book. So obviously I left it as is. But as far as outing herself, I I don't know. I'm not sure. You know, I know that she's She's told a lot of, you know, her friends and family about the book and and given them copies. So I suppose among her her friends and family, she's added herself. Yeah. But And what's next for you, Catherine? I'm working on a few different things. I'm actually gonna be in England this summer, I think, to do a few readings. I'm doing a, a writing residency in Switzerland this spring and then after that I think I'm going to travel to the UK, which is exciting. Excellent. Well, I hope that we'll get to meet you when you're here, Catherine. Thank you so much. Thank you. That's Catherine Scanlon. Her book Kick the Latch is published in the UK by Daunt Books and by New Directions Publishing in the US. You've been listening to Monocle Reads. Thanks to the producer, Nora Hull, and our studio manager, Adam Heaton. You can download this show and previous episodes from our website, Apple Podcasts or Spotify. I'm Georgina Godwin. Thank you for listening.